Or we keep this as a little taste to Mazda as what they could be getting for their money. I think we might need to cut this for other reasons, too. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is April 28th, 2020. I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me distantly from his apartment in New York City, senior sports around Neil Pan. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. Socially distantly. Very socially distantly, yeah. yes. And from the interior of his Mazda in LA, 538 contributor Jeff Foster. I like the way we're just giving Mazda free ads at this point. I, I think we should <laughs> sponsor our podcast. Should, I think we should have them sponsor the podcast. Uh, Sunday brought us another two episodes of The Last Dance, ESPN's 10-part documentary about Michael Jordan and the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls. This week, we got to see the bad boys Detroit Piston of the late 1980s, which I loved. I like, I always liked them. I know they were, you know, bullies and push people around. And bad, yeah, they were bad. (laughs) (laughs) That was their whole thing, right? But I, I kind of liked their thing when they walked off the court. Okay. That's a new thing. Stop. I also um, really love poor Isaiah Thomas, the current basketball player, getting like a million Twitter, angry Twitterers <laughs> tweeting at him like it's his fault because he his name is Isaiah Thomas. It's not even spelled the same way, people. Come on. Although although you got to admit, this is the occupational hazard that you take on when you go into the NBA with the same name as a Hall of Fame NBA player. Like Again, he could have called a Michael, a Michael, the same. a Michael B. Jordan. You know, that's why he put that B in there. So there was no confusion. He could have been Isaiah B. Thomas. Wasn't it because there. of his equity card? Probably since Michael, the real Michael Jordan probably already. That's probably one. actually. Yeah, that's the, the with Michael B. Jordan because he was in Space Jam. Yeah, he's in the he's in the guild. Yeah. Also, you know, Samuel L. Jackson. Maybe that maybe sports should do that, though. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sort of in favor of that just for confusion. Like. It would make it easier for, for like, you know, basketball reference and, and data people like us trying to kind of match up names because there's nothing worse. And you start to irrationally hate players that do this when you have two players that have the same name and they play the same year. Uh, and, and you have no way aside from manually checking to disentangle one from the other when you're, when you're trying to, uh, do data work with them. It's really the worst. Will no one think of the data journalists? I mean, yeah, <laughs> we're the ones that that are, that should be carrying this this banner. We're the we're on the front lines of this fight. <laughs> on today's show, we'll check in on the results of the NFL draft. We'll examine the teams that set themselves up for success this year, and also the Green Bay Packers. Then hey. we'll be. <laughs> Boom. Then we'll be bringing back a segment we call Get Off My Court to vent a little bit about both the NFL and the WNBA drafts and what actually constitutes live sports. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NFL draft went off pretty error-free last weekend, at least in terms of the technical challenge of doing it virtually. While the top picks were relatively tame, there were a few true surprises. Chief among them were the Green Bay Packers trading up to number 26 to take Utah State quarterback Jordan Love, reportedly without informing two-time MVP and current Packer quarterback Aaron Rodgers that he was about to have an apprentice. Tim Kalashaw had this to say about the pick on Friday, right after the first round. 
on ESPN's Around the Horn. I think I hate everything about this. Uh, you know, <laughs> starting sure? with what you said, they had no communication with Rodgers, which you probably should do if you're going to use your first-round pick. When you're a team as good as Green Bay that got as far as they did last year, but you're really limited in areas and you need help on run defense and you really need another receiver not named Devontae Adams to help this team and all of those things are available and you go, hmm, this worked 15 years ago and people laughed at us. Let's try that again and not help this team right now and see if we can pull it off. I just think it's, uh, it's great for everybody who's a Packers rival and bad for Green Bay. As a fan of a Packers rival myself, I can't be entirely objective about this or at all objective about this. So, Jeff, is Kalashaw right, or was there a case to be made for investing in Love? Well, I think there's a case to be made for investing in him, certainly. I mean, if anything's been proven over the last four years is that, like, you can't just have one quarterback who's, you know, in his the back half of his 30s and just expect everything to be fine. I mean, like, quarterbacks get hurt constantly. We've seen the importance of backups. And um, we've seen the importance of having, like, the next next quarterback who's going to take the reins, um, you know, lined up. So I think on the surface, it wasn't that crazy of a move. I think the problem is that the Packers are one of the teams that are in this win now mode. I mean, they, they went pretty far in the NFL playoffs last year. Most people don't remember that because it wasn't like a very <laughs> yeah, memorable run or anything. Uh, they need There's some things they could do to make this current team and Aaron Rodgers team better. I think it's the second year without McCarthy. And there's a lot of obviously potential there. A lot of people wanted a wide receiver. This team does feel like they're pretty close and adding an, a weapon and in a a draft that everyone was saying was the you know the deepest receiver draft in years that they missed an opportunity there. So I get it. I get why Packer fans are upset because on paper, like Jordan Love and assuming Roger doesn't Rogers doesn't get hurt is not going to help them at all this year. So I think I think that's the source of the tension. It isn't really around Love per se. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin Seifert of ESPN wrote. It's worth noting that they, the Packers, are operating with the kind of long-term vision that many of us criticize other teams for ignoring, which I thought was a really interesting take. Well, I have, I have lots of reactions to that sentiment, but I'm curious about your thoughts on that, Neil. Yeah, I mean, that's what I kind of mean in a vacuum, taking the next quarterback when, uh, as an insurance option when you have this guy who's getting up there in age. And yeah, I know quarterbacks have been playing, you know, into their 40s we've seen Drew Brees and Tom Brady <laughs> but at the same time you know there's no guarantee that now every Hall of Fame quarterback once he gets into his late 30s will still be good in a vacuum getting the successor and trying to kind of you know think a year earlier than you might need something at a position is sort of what we praise you know we praise the Patriots for doing that but they do it at positions other than quarterback and they do it with with players that they have more flexibility with in terms of years left and and uh cap money committed to and so i think maybe that's the 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 problem is just the particulars of this situation i guess as much as anything yeah i mean i had more issue with the running back pick in the second round um aj dillon it it didn't seem like that was a, there was very much value in those picks i mean they could have gotten them later and i think that's that's how you should grade drafts is like 
whether the pick made really sense at the time or they could have got it a little bit later and, 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 and maybe done something else. But I think the point is, you know, for these teams that are, are in the win now window, you don't want to have a situation where one injury derails anything, which is a mentality, which is smart. Cause look, watch the NFL any week and, and see how many quarterbacks are getting injured. Like you do need two quarterbacks. So there is a scenario where love could prove to be very valuable. Yeah, but, you know, Jordan Love might not be the particular quarterback that right. you would think of as being the insurance policy, right? Because we don't know what this guy brings to the table. You know, two years ago when he was a sophomore at Utah State, he had 32 touchdowns against only six interceptions and looked, you know, like a real uh, future NFL starter. Last year, he had 20 touchdowns and 17 interceptions. And we should say Utah State played a much more difficult schedule last year than they did two years ago. So it calls into question uh, exactly how much of a sure thing he is. I mean, the scouts really love his his arm strength and his, you know, kind of raw tools. But at the same time, a lot of the projections that we've seen from places like Pro Football Focus and, and places like that uh, warned that, you know, he didn't have the highest grade and, and might not have the, the best potentials. Are they really going to put in a rookie? Like, they could do that. Then they're obviously not going to win this year, one would assume. Um, given how rookies to even really great rookies, rookie quarterbacks fare in the NFL. Well, they might work in that system, right? I mean, you know, if you put Joe Burrow down in the, with the Packers, he'd pro- they probably win a lot of games and he'd probably be pretty good, right? Would he? I don't know. With no one I think to he would. to? I mean, that's the thing. They don't have other offensive weapons, though. You know, he does have a tendency to make so-so receivers look great. Devontae Adams aside, who I think is uh, obviously a special talent, Um He's he's worked with so so supporting cast in terms of the skill positions in the past too, and they've and they've been successful. And I do think they did squander his his prime, but I think that was more on McCarthy than on um you know any sort of team building. It was really that sort of came down to the the coaching. I think I don't know. They didn't. They hadn't drafted a, a skill offensive skill position in fifteen years in the first round. Which that's kind of crazy, right? I mean, why not give him more, especially as he gets older? That's what the Saints do, right? They they act like every season with Drew Brees is his last season. And one of these days, that's going to be correct. But they find they find players to compliment him, and I don't feel like that's what the Packers were doing this year. My my other thing here is that it's not just that they drafted this like kind of sketchy quarterback who's no one's completely sure about. And they did it in the first round. They traded up for him. They gave away a draft pick to trade up for spots ahead of teams that did not need a quarterback. So like none of that made sense. Why move up above? So they went, they, they traded with Miami who obviously already had a quarterback that they had just drafted leapfrogging Seattle, Baltimore and Tennessee. None of those teams needed a quarterback. Tennessee had been rumored like months ago that they might be interested in love, but that was before they gave Ryan Tannehill a four-year extension. So like the the theory of that doesn't make sense to me. So it's not just who they drafted, it's how they drafted him. Yeah, and he could have fallen down uh you know to that to that lower pick if, you know if they had just waited. I think it was yeah. sort of 
letting letting that pick burn a hole in your pocket. Look, it was a bad draft. I mean, this is why Mel Kuyper Jr. of ESPN, whose draft grades usually run the gamut from B to A+, uh, <laughs> gave, gave the Packers a rare C for their draft. Guys, you know who got A's? The Vikings. The Minnesota Vikings. Um, I like their draft. There was a, it was a really exciting draft. It was a win-win-win because they had a good draft. The Packers' draft was much much derided and and uh, people were pretty down on the bears draft also i'm not gonna lie it was a great weekend for me (laughs) (laughs) but sarah to answer we don't know what's going on on the phones with these guys like it's very it was very possible the patriots i was i was terrified the patriots were gonna either love was gonna fall to their second round pick um or they were gonna maybe move up and and get love because that and and of course the patriots just end up not taking a quarterback altogether i i actually think they had arguably the worst draft um which it was a weird always, draft for sure it, yeah i mean they took a kicker in the fifth round um i mean you usually in fantasy the team that reaches for the kicker first is the worst owner in the league <laughs> That's what it's that's what it's gotten to this year though. Uh there there was a lot written about how about how teams were going with familiar FBS school players uh, and that the FCS players were kind of left by the wayside because pro days were canceled and teams right. didn't get to do in-person workouts or interviews or anything like that and because of the coronavirus uh shutting everything down. Also, the Patriots didn't get that memo cuz if let's also remember that their first pick went to Lenore Ryan, Division Two, not even FCS, so they they were digging deep, maybe too deep. I guess is the point. So let's set aside Green Bay for the moment and talk about the possible mistakes made by other teams. We actually ran a story from our colleague Josh Hermsmeyer about value in the first round of the draft. Jeff, which teams reached the most? Well, in Josh's article, the first one he points to is Andrew Thomas, which is the tackle uh, that the Giants took. That, I think, is... um, I don't know if that was a reach. I think we knew that the Giants were going to get a tackle, or were going to likely get a tackle to sort of protect Daniel Jones. Talk about reaches. Let's just... (laughs) (laughs) That one. He was better than we thought he would be last year, at least. Yeah, he was. He was better than we thought he was going to be. They still took him too high. Um, <laughs> with Jedrick Willis and, uh, Becton and Worfs from, uh, Iowa, there was a lot of, there was, I, I, it was really those four tackles. It was going to be one of those four. I think Andrew Thomas was not the one anyone was predicting. In fact, the one most people were predicting was Worfs who went last, uh, to Tampa Bay. So in some regards, and that was a good pick. Yeah. Well, good by the same logic, that's a, that's a good pick. Um, th- I want to talk a little bit more about the Giants pick. Just because it sort of it showed a a problem in this year's draft, maybe that trades were seemed much harder to make. There were no there were no trades in the first ten picks, which hasn't happened in a while. Um, and the virtual nature of the draft might have might have affected that because you would have you would think that if you can get more value out of a pick, you would you can get the player you want later. You would trade down and take that pick then and try to get a little bit more value, but. Gettleman said that he would have considered that, though he has never traded down before. Um, but he got no offers for that number four pick, which I thought was really interesting and was like, oh, there are problems with the virtual draft that that we haven't seen with regular drafts. Uh, alternatively, I think that also could have been because of the quarterback, the quarterback landscape in the league right now. Be- beyond Miami, the Chargers, 
and the Bengals, there were no teams out there that were really desperate for a quarterback. I mean, you look at the next few quarterbacks taken, Love, Hurts, Eason, even James Morgan, who the Jets took, and then the Bills taking from. Like, these were all, they're all immediately going to backup roles. So, whereas in previous years, you could have, you know, a half dozen teams that are desperate for a quarterback. And in that case, all of a sudden, the Giants pick with the Dolphins behind them um, starts looking a lot more appealing. And I think I think that's the only, I, I don't know, it, my theory is that that's, that's the position that's going to force a team into a really high pick. I mean, we've seen that in previous years. We definitely saw that the year the Jets took Darnold and, and, and they moved up to get in a better position because there were a bunch of teams that want wanted quarterbacks and they wanted to be, you know, they weren't content with their current pick. So I think that was at play. I, I, I can't speak to whether it had to do with the, the general calm situation. You assume these guys, the phones still work. I mean, that's what they're doing in, in a normal year anyway. Maybe they didn't have dial up internet. And so they couldn't get on the phone because they couldn't lose their, their internet. Oh, yeah. Connection. What, yeah. What if their kids were using the modem? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have a, do they have a 20, 28.8 uh, or a 56 K? Like our uh, younger so, listeners have no idea what we're talking about. No, right not now. at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also beyond that, there's also, you know, we saw James Will, uh, James Winston sign and in and, and Cam, and th- there's also some options on the on the table currently. So there wasn't this desperation that if we don't get, you know, Justin Herbert or Jordan Love or Tua, we, you know, we're not going to be able to compete and we're missing a huge opportunity. So I, I think that just the way everything aligned up, that sort of affected the lack of trades. Do you think it's also possible that teams are just smarter now about not trading up? I mean, we've heard the the eggheads such as ourselves, uh, <laughs> or at least myself, not to speak mainly you. Guys. Yeah, say for years, you know, on the basis of some of the research, like the famous Massey Thaler paper about the loser, the winner's curse in the uh, in the NFL draft, uh, that you know, trading up is almost always stupid uh teams have no persistent ability to predict uh who will be better or worse than you know you would expect based on their their scouted uh predicted draft slot i i think that you're probably right although i would be more convinced by that if so many running backs were not still taken in the first couple of rounds of the draft like they're only listening to part of the nerd the nerd uh system that's a good point no that is a good point especially given the fact that you know, all of these running backs. Well, I mean, running backs weren't taken that high, though. I mean, that snapped yeah, a, a recent true. trend. I, I think in a previous year, you know, going back, if you go back 10 years, 20 years, like Jonathan Taylor, the Wisconsin running back, would have been top 10 pick. I mean, considering or DeAndre that Swift. Did college. Or DeAndre Swift, yeah. I mean, it, it, they still went, you know, in the top 50, but it just wasn't, you know, the top, you know, first half of the first round. Well, and Ezekiel Elliott and um, also Todd Gurley have not made the best cases uh, over the past year or two to be a highly paid running back. You know, we were talking a couple of years ago about how this was like, oh, the tide's turning back in, uh, in favor of the running backs. You know, they're getting paid a little bit more and maybe they're getting drafted higher. You know, when uh, when you saw like Barkley go, you know, super high a few years ago uh, and now it's like, oh, wait. Todd Gurley is less than a year after signing that contract. He's, you know, not even with the Rams anymore. Uh, and Ezekiel Elliott's contract already looks like a terrible mistake. 
It looked like a terrible mistake from the very beginning. Well, yeah, to us it did. To us (laughs) it did. Right. I I found the Chiefs-like situation very interesting because they took uh, running back Clyde Edwards-Hilar at number 32. They literally just won the Super Bowl with undrafted running backs running all over the place. Like, they proved the nerds right that you don't need to take a running back. You don't need to draft a running back uh, highly or at all to succeed. Um, and then they took one in the first round. So I was like, well, okay. <laughs> they didn't learn their own lesson. How did you guys feel about sort of the sillier aspects of the virtual draft? Like getting to see into people's living rooms. Did you enjoy seeing Bill Belichick's dog and like uh, John Harbaugh's birdhouses? Was that was that fun? I thought it was great. I mean... They should just do it like this every time. Everything's relative, <laughs> but it was definitely the most enjoyable draft on memory. Um, I, I mean, I was watching day three. I, I was joking to someone that I was watching day three Saturday morning. Like I was like gearing up for Michigan Notre Dame. Like I was like, ooh, we got so many picks in the fifth round here as a Jet fan. I'm like, you know, I was glued to it. I was into it. Um, granted, there's probably other reasons because of, uh, you know, no sports going on. Um but I, I did like seeing. I did like seeing inside everyone's house. I like seeing Adam Gase's son, you know, work a Rubik's cube. I, I, it was a, it was a nice moment for me. <laughs> and seeing and what the Kingsbury Gase family is like. Yeah, seeing Chris <laughs> Cliff Kingsbury shamelessly show off his uh, cheesy house. He lives in the house from Parasite, right? Yeah, that was my favorite meme. <laughs> Um, I also really liked Mike Zimmer's like cabin in the woods. His hunting like, lodge, yeah, it's <laughs> amazing. That was also, very on brand. Yeah. The only thing I didn't like as much were just like the phenomenon of the the GM's family like hugging them and congratulating them after they made a pick. Like I totally get the players' family congratulating them after <laughs> they were picked. It's like, yeah, they had no control over that, and this is like a big moment for them. But after the 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 GM made the pick or the coach or whatever, it's like you knew that you knew you were going to make that pick. This is not a surprise at all, and it's not an accomplishment. Let's let's maybe give this another five years to see how it plays out before congratulating you for this particular pick. Yeah, I also like see I also like seeing the players with their families and their and. The, in their houses rather than, uh, you know, just getting up and, you know, going up and hugging Goodell. I mean, this was way more entertaining when, when the Jets took um, Becton, seeing his dad and all that, that was like a great moment. Honestly, I think I preferred it. Um, I don't need to see a bunch of guys wearing like bow ties and pinstripes and shaking, shaking Goodell's hand and putting on the hat. I mean, like that, that's not as interesting to me. The only thing that might've been missing was just like the fans booing a particular pick, you know, like you see the jet jet fans, of course, obviously are are the the Goodell, like asking for the booze from the random fan. That was the the lamest part to me. Yeah, that was lame. Him being in on it was annoying. You know, that just ruins the booing. I mean, now you're doing what he says. Don't give him the satisfaction. Right, right, right. (laughs) Okay, I think that's a good spot for us to leave this for now. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll take a deep dive into the opposite of data. Bad takes on Twitter. Over the past week, a lot of folks have been excited to have something football-related to discuss, including us, but especially ESPN's Adam Schefter. But let this be a lesson to you all not to tweet in generalities. 
Schefter offered a take about the NFL draft being a welcome return to sports. While we don't have the audio of the tweet, we have spared no expense on a dramatic rendition. Neil. For the first time in what feels like forever, a real live sporting event. If we're counting the NFL draft as a live sporting event, then the WNBA draft was just six days beforehand. Not only was it taking place, it was watched by an average of more than 300,000 people on ESPN, as lots of people were quick to remind Schefter. And Twitter being Twitter, this spiraled into a random verified user saying that the WNBA isn't a professional sport. And then the Washington Mystics' Natasha Cloud challenging that person in no uncertain terms to play her and find out for himself what kind of sport it really is. This episode on its own was, you know, pretty inconsequential. I was mad online, but that's not really a new phenomenon. And Schefter later later tweeted an apology. It's hardly news that the WNBA does not get as much media attention as the National Football League. And it's not exactly surprising that a guy who covers football would be thinking primarily about football. I I get that. But it got us thinking. And so we're bringing back an occasional segment, Get Off My Court, where we don't so much dissect a specific hot take, but go after all takes in general and offer one of our own. So let's talk about what constitutes live sports in the first place and why some sports are still more equal than others. First, drafts in general. Jeff, are drafts really sporting events? They are events and they are live, but they are not actually sports. I mean, they're not. No one's getting hurt. No one is sweating. Um, Yes, there are winners and losers, but that isn't clear. There is not a scoreboard. Um, Instead, it's just a bunch of armchair experts who read three mock drafts and think they know more than career professionals. Hey, rude. I'm sitting right here. Okay. <laughs> um, so, no, it's not a sporting event. I mean, yeah, no, it's not competition. It, it it has to do with sports. And obviously, I think it's just spillover from, you know, our love of the actual sporting events, which are the games. So, yeah, I mean, semantics at this point. Obviously, the, the NFL draft and I think the to a slightly smaller extent, the NBA draft have become big deals on par with, you know, playoffs um, of certain sports. Uh, So it is an important thing that people do sort of circle the calendar and make appointment uh, viewing. So I'm not going to go on a limb and argue that it is a sporting event because by definition it isn't, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I agree with you, Jeff, that, uh, you know, they're both wrong, Adam Schefter and his critics, in the sense that neither – Draft is a sporting event because drafts are not sporting events. They're sports adjacent events. Yes, adjacent events. But that's not the same thing as a sporting event. And at the core, drafts are literally just someone reading off a list of names off a piece of paper in some order. Yeah, if you want a sporting event, you got to wait for the Arkansas Derby. You know, that's the only thing we can. Oh, man, we almost got through a whole podcast without talking about horse racing. I had to plug the Arkansas Derby. They're my backup sponsor if Mazda doesn't come through. (laughs) (laughs) Love, love that. So I I guess I agree with you that drafts aren't really sports. They're not really sporting events. But regardless of how you see them, 
the NFL and the WNBA each had one. Like it's if you're going to consider sports a lot, you know, finally a sporting event happening with the draft, then you can't really ignore the draft that just happened just in a different sport, right? Yeah, I mean, look, there's no getting around that it was, you know, sexism played a role in the decision to consider the NFL draft a, quote, real event and forget that the WNBA draft happened. I mean, there are also big differences in terms of viewership and popularity between the two leagues. We're talking about the most popular uh, professional sports league in America against a league that has struggled for, you know, attendance and viewership over the years. And, uh, you know, is starting to gain momentum, but at the same time is kind of not considered in that same uh, conversation. And yes, I know that sexism plays a large role in that too. So, you know, but we are talking about two very different leagues. It's, it's um, you know, and just in terms of people's baseline interest in it. For sure. And, and I, I don't even really, I'm not trying to, to say that the WNBA draft should be should receive the same kind of attention that the NFL draft does. I think they both are important and they both need attention. But I understand that, you know, more people care about the NFL and the ratings are much better. What got me was <laughs> my my mistake all the time is that I read the comments, right? I read the replies to Schefter's apology. And it it was so clear that we weren't even really talking about whether he was wrong to miss that other draft, it quickly became whether the WNBA deserved coverage at all. And so many of these guys just don't don't think it should, don't think it's a real sport, don't think it's a professional sport. I wonder for those for the people who are fixated on the lower ratings for women's sports and, and that being a reason for us to not talk about them, if there's some threshold that the WNBA could get to in, in ratings or revenue to make it universally considered a pro sport? Or is it just that these guys are misogynists who don't want women to succeed? And I get that Twitter replies are not a good um, cross-section of real life people, and I should discount that. But it was more and more disheartening reading those replies, realizing that so many of these guys on Twitter don't just don't think it's a sport don't think it's worthy of any consideration whatsoever I, I think you're I mean first of all d don't read the comments that's I know. that's on you <laughs> second of all I will say as a uh, father of an eight-year-old daughter who I subjected begrudgingly to the NFL draft she couldn't have had less interest if I had had the WNBA draft on on the screen she would have been very interested and I think that's the 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 sort of flaw here. And I'm sure, first of all, probably a lot of those guys who are replying have daughters and they're not thinking about this. And I, I think there is, you know, something inherent misogyny going on here in the sports world. And that's not going to go away overnight. I think it, it has to be chipped away. And I think we're maybe starting. We definitely saw that, you know, during the Women's World Cup. And I, I think that some of those, some of, and, and, you know, the women's world cup being that popular and that, that, that as a, a must see att attraction is a relatively new concept in the, in the grand scheme. I mean, granted there's, you know, been a few of these now, but you go back, you have to go back to 99, you know, when that, when that event really reached the echelon of national, um, critical mass. Um, yeah, I just, I guess I, 
uh, your point about having a daughter who is interested in women's sports is is a really interesting one because I do feel like there's this weird disconnect from all of the guys who were tweeting hashtag girl dad after Kobe Bryant died, but also will comment to any post about the WNBA with not a sport. Schefter's tweet opened up the Pandora's box into the world of NFL you know, hardcore uh, chauvinist fans, you know, I mean, compared with like, I think basketball, because we've seen the women's version of it succeed uh, in a way that probably aside from soccer, no other women's sport has really succeeded over the years uh, that, you know, basketball fans are more inclined probably compared with NFL fans. I would expect, I'm not basing this on anything, but it's just, we haven't, the women's version of football uh, for, for the longest time was like that lingerie league you know i mean it's like ridiculous (laughs) so i think it's just a difference in you know fan bases also when you talk about those two i also feel like just just one more thing on top of that is that there's also this is part of this is trumpism in that there's this knee-jerk reaction to anything it just causes people to be angry because it's viewed as just pc and we hate pc now well sure but why it's it's just sports. It's like these people who can't help themselves but to tell athletes to stick to sports, like need to stick to whatever realm they're in because it's just it's sports. It's not politics. There are some times when sports are just sports. Um, I mean, I think there is something revolutionary about the 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 history of women making a world for themselves where they can play and it has nothing to do with men. It has nothing to do with the male gaze or any of that. It's just them wanting to play. But in an individual, like this is a draft that's happening. That's not a political statement. It's a necessity for the league. It's important for the league, obviously. Um, I don't know. I mean, conservatism though is, you know, at its core about harkening back to the way things were in some kind of idealized past in which if you go back you know, to the 1950s, 60s, whatever, there weren't women's sports, you know, at, at the same level. So I think this idea is that uh, to, to a certain segment of the population, it's an imposition of something new to to have to care about, you know, onto their their collection of sports that they've always cared about. And, and that's, a, you know, a kind of a progressive uh, stance. I, I guess I guess that's probably true. I just don't understand why. Why? People who don't want to follow the WNBA just don't follow the WNBA. Yeah, they don't. They don't have to. No one's putting a gun to their head telling them to 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 have to follow it. Yeah, it's like, the, it's like the NHL. It's optional. Yeah. Well, exactly. Hey, you, Sarah. I, I don't. I do not get into the to hockey, and no one is trying to make me watch it except you two, and I can just ignore you guys, so that's fine. But I don't like pop into Twitter threads to say something like. Hockey's just a colder soccer or some nonsense like that. <laughs> Maybe that you should true. start. I know. I just don't engage with it. And I don't seek out its fans or its players to tell them their experience as fans or players isn't important or it doesn't mean anything. And that's where I kind of disagree with you, Neil, about this. And if the NFL, fa- NFL fans probably are worse about women's sports, but I see that with like Every, every time we post a story about women's basketball, someone is commenting, who cares or not a sport. And like, why? But I think that that's the crux of the whole thing for me. The WNBA is trying to grow its fan base and develop an audience and get mainstream media attention, which is 
made harder when people who work for the very network that televises the WNBA draft forget that it's a thing. That is very frustrating. But it's it's not enough that the league and the players have to deal with like disinterest from people. That's annoying, but fine. It's that these reply guys don't want the sport to exist. They're not just like apathetic towards women's sports. They actively want to like disband them or something. Well, I can say one thing, though, is that uh, if Harry, uh, whoever the guy that replied, uh, right. you know, to the tweet that then Natasha Cloud uh, responded to, if they did play one on one, that would be a live sport. And I would like to watch that. <laughs> Because she would that. murder him. Yeah, I would watch that over watching uh, just athletes playing horse uh, any day, any day of the week. I don't know. So I guess my takeaway here is that, like, I-, I would love for more people to watch women's sports and appreciate how fun it is, just like every other sport, and that it's interesting. And and there's just really incredible athletes playing at the highest levels of their game. But, like, if you don't want to do that, Fine. I think that's the worst for your sports experience, but that's fine. All you have to do then is just ignore, ignore it, just ignore it, and please shut the hell up about it. I love it, and I think you're, <laughs> I think you're right. Also, in the uh, there's this weird double standard with the participation sports. You brought up the Kobe, the Kobe, um, the girl dad thing, because that doesn't get. You know, that is also relatively new. You know, girls were not playing organized sports every weekend in the 50s and 60s also. And and no one looks at that like, oh, my daughter's got to play soccer because of PC. I mean, like that is accepted and, you know, embrace. So why it cuts off at the professional level doesn't make any sense. And when you called out, you know, if we called out Kobe for pandering and being, you know, some kind of PC effort to try to redeem his image, you got murdered on Twitter, you know, for for making that suggestion that that it was done for appearances sake, you know, right after he died. So there's a double standard, too. Well, that's like part of the whole reason I had a problem with all of that was that that felt performative and then showing showing how people actually respond when we when we want to have discussions about the WNBA and, and center that sport is like oh yeah you you didn't care about this ever you were just adding a hashtag to your tweets which is way more virtual virtue signaling than it's being okay with the existence of women's sports so yeah um yeah so that's my rant i just want us to do better i assume that um the listeners of this podcast who we know already have very good taste are doing better so this isn't for you you guys this is for all of the jerks out there (laughs) if you uh if you want everyone to stop being an idiot on twitter (laughs) um i can't say i endorse that ambition i feel like that's that's a a lost cause a girl can dream jeff Okay, I think we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break and then we'll get back with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Sure. So uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, my colleague Ryan Best and I published this interactive that you can still find on 538.com that basically tried to select playoff games in the NBA for you to watch uh, while sports were shut down according to a set of criteria that we wanted to build. And so uh, 
we were kind of presented with this question of, well, how do you cut down every playoff game on YouTube to a manageable number that we can kind of filter and sort and, and, and assign attributes to using data? Uh, so what we ended up doing was we cut down the categories. One is legendary matchups, which was based on ELO ratings. And this was basically just you take the this fancy a- version of an average called a harmonic mean between the two uh, teams pregame ELO ratings and then the teams with the best combination of the strengths of the two teams, that was uh, what qualified you. And we took the top 20 there. Uh, Then we looked at uh, stunning upsets. This was another one that we used our ELO uh, predictions. But uh, in concert with that, it gives a probability of each team winning the game uh, based on the team's ratings. And so the game where the team that ended up winning had the lowest chance going in, those were our stunning upsets. So we took the top 20 there. And then we also looked at iconic comebacks, which was based on uh, the largest deficits that each team trailed by uh, and then ended up actually coming back and, and winning uh, at any point in the game. It's not perfect with the lowest chance of winning. You know, it's, it's all it was all about working with the data that we had. And then we also added these expert picks, which were uh, based on some of these rankings from places like ESPN of the best finals games uh and uh, subjectively speaking so we added those to the list um but anyway so once we had that list it was about 60 games i would say that we had in there uh that we were able to kind of list in the interactive you can go in there you can filter it down to what type of game you want you can have it pick a random game for you at the end of the day this was our way of trying to apply a bunch of different metrics to something that is kind of inherently uh, unquantifiable in terms of like what makes a classic game and, you know, how do you define all the things that go into that? And I think one of the things we learned is that, uh, especially among historical data, it's not fully suited to being able to kind of uh, quantify what makes a classic game. And uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of throw it to you guys to, to ask, what do you think makes a classic uh, game? What do you, how, how do you think we should quantify what is a classic game? And then just subjectively, what are your favorite games to go back and watch? Have you been in this quarantine time going back and watching old games? Or do old games not, you know, kind of create excitement for you guys because you already in some ways know what happened? Yeah, I, I'm really torn on that because there are, there are times I want to rewatch a game because I know something that happens and I just want to see it again. Um but like mostly I'm not as interested in classic games, which I know is um, I, I don't I don't mean to disappoint you, Neil, because um, I know you. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I think I'm abnormally interested in it, but for totally different reasons, which I can get into uh, in, in a little bit after you guys. What about you, Jeff? Oh, I'm I'm actually with Sarah here. I hate I hate to, uh, you know, take the side of not liking classic games when we're talking about this wonderful interactive 538 has about class nice. games, which everyone should go on and check out because it is is that a good save i don't know if that was a good save or not <laughs> uh, but i happen to not enjoy class classics i've never been one to watch that um with the exception of golf i have been uh known to watch old masters highlights recently i've been known recently to do this <laughs> but um just because i think in a lot of cases i just had never watched it the first time um because i came to the sport a little bit later comparatively i do think your uh criteria for uh capturing uh what makes a classic game was pretty good i think you took 
basically all the key components, whether that was, you know, just two great teams happening to run into each other, shocking, surprising results, and also last minute drama and that kind of thing. So um, I think you nailed it. I'm curious what what the game, I was wondering if there was a trend in the type of games that you might have overlooked. Well, uh, someone pointed out that we didn't have enough San Antonio Spurs dynasty games, which uh, I think is true. Like, uh, and in the ones that we do, it's like disproportionately them playing some other team. Like, for instance, the classic game six of the 2013 NBA finals where Ray Allen hits that shot. That's in there, but it's really, it's, it's not a, a Spurs classic. It's really more <laughs> of a heat classic. Uh, so I think that that, and I don't know if there was something about those games where, I think the Spurs, because of the nature of their dynasty, uh, the fact that they were great over a long period of time, but they never won consecutive championships. And I think ELO sort of doesn't give them as full a credit as it would to a team that really burned uh, brightly in like a three-peat or something like that at their peak. So I think that was one of the trends that came up. Uh, But aside from that, you know, it's just people's personal preferences came into play. And to be honest, I mean, if I'm uh, talking about my own preferences in older games, uh, I tend maybe to shy away from even the types of games that we included in here because we're including iconic games, specifically from the playoffs and usually from the finals. Those are games where I do remember what happened. Like sometimes, especially you know, late in the series, you you definitely know what happened because you know who won the championship right, that year. Right. Sometimes you'll get one that's like game one of a series where the team that that won the series didn't actually win that game. Maybe the 91 finals is a good example of that, where the Lakers beat the Bulls, uh, as as you would have found out by watching uh, The Last Dance the other night. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was that, gonna say, oh, I remember that. No, I just literally just saw it. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, you know, those can be interesting because you're like, what game did the team win uh but for the most part you know who won these these championship round games for me the more interesting and god bless the people that upload these to youtube are like random games in the middle of the season and specifically for baseball because right now you know from april through october every year i will have a baseball game on almost every night i just have it on i'm not paying attention to it for the most part you know i'll, I'll kind of check in and out but it's always in the background because to me that's spring that's summer that's you know uh what i'm used to what my rhythms are and so in this weird time where we don't have sports it's that's one of the weirder things to to be missing is not having that rhythm of oh it's it's april 28th and and there's no baseball on tonight like that's crazy so to me i like the the random games from like you know somebody has uploaded some seattle mariners game from 1997 from august and you have no idea who won this game you barely know who's playing in this game it's like oh there's griffey there's there's a rod that's cool but (laughs) you just throw it on and it gives you the illusion that there's some you know that rhythm of of actually having baseball on in the background to me that's the real value of these games is is not the um the championship round games, but the ones where it's just like, oh, I don't know who will win this. And I'm actually, you know, vaguely interested in half watching it in the background. Yeah, I, I've noticed that like, um, so I've, I've, I'm, I'm obviously a Minnesota Twins fan and I follow them on, on, on Twitter and they'll tweet out like the their network is showing, you know, some game from the middle of some season. And I'm like, well, 
the twins probably won this one. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be replaying it. Like <laughs> you if have it was to just do... a boring five nothing loss. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like that's not a gonna... flaw in watching the team specific. Right. Yeah, they're not going to tweet out like even exciting games in which they lost. We're not. We're not going to play those again. Which I support because I actually don't like rewatching the games where my team loses. If I'm like, well, this is maybe weird because I tend to watch games. I'll I'll watch like the replay of it sometimes, um, but only if they win because I don't want to re I don't want to see the replay of their loss. So maybe just a random game is the way to go. But again, I don't want to watch it when they lose. So I I, I really have a, I struggle there with how to watch <laughs> those classic games because I want to be invested, but I don't want to be disappointed. Yeah, it's it's a fine line. So Jeff, you're just watching golf golf replay no 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 no. i mean like you know just watching uh certain round not like full tournaments i mean that would be psychotic (laughs) (laughs) true (laughs) but i'll be watching you know the the bubba bubba watson winning you know on the iconic you know hook around the tree or watching just highlights i mean that one i was familiar with but that's a bad example or certain meltdowns i I like to watch the meltdowns that's what i'm drawn to i could watch spief hitting in the water over and over it's just entertaining (laughs) to me i love that have you have you watched any classic horse races i have i have been known (laughs) to do that but you know not i wouldn't say that's regular viewing let's be honest here (laughs) And also, two minutes long. Like I said, look. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. It's a very low level of investment. Yeah. 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 You're in and out. Bite size. You can watch the whole thing. All right. Well, we will leave that there. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please review and rate us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Metlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.